familiar passage, passage from Matthew and a passage from Mark. So the first one is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to the kingdom of heaven. He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. And the second reading is from Mark 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Thanks, Beth. There's a verse in, um, that's, that's found in Matthew 22:32, and this is Jesus speaking. And he says this, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And for quite some time, I've been um, just really challenged and inspired by this verse and by the biblical pronunciation that God is the God of generations. Actually, you read it and you see it quite a lot in the Bible. Um, and mo- much of my thinking about this has been kind of challenged and pressured by the reality that often I've been involved in a youth church or children's church or uh, I know I was was chatting to Mike Pellavacci a few years ago and he was saying they had an 18 to 30s church and then the 40 40 year olds in the church came and said well we want our own gathering too and he was thinking this is going to be ridiculous we're going to have children's church and youth church and 18s church and 40s church and then the seniors are going to say well what about us and and before you know it we end up with kind of seven different separate age congregations And, and of course clearly sometimes they have their place but sometimes we end up being really split and it becomes sometimes maybe really divisive and so where does freedom for worship and our style of worship or the way we want to do that where does that kind of mix in with what it means to be family and to think what that might look like and so I've been thinking about quite a lot of that and and, and how sometimes the church gets slightly fractured into little groups that we park off and often classically children's church is that we take them out we look after them best we can but actually we want to get them out so we can do church and I've been part of really brilliant churches where I've heard people say it's really great when the kids go out so we can do church and I understand why sometimes we say that but that's just really a sad thought so what might intergenerational church really look like or feel like what might be some of the challenges what might be some of the benefits to us I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, said Jesus. So what about those three characters? Well, Abraham, he had real faith. Out of all the tribes of the earth, Abraham was taken out of all of them and claimed as the father of the faith. 
like the disciples of Jesus' day and the disciples of our day. Abraham was invited to leave everything, to go to a place that he didn't know. And there he had an amazing encounter with God, so real that he could stake his life on it. His faith, an example, a gift, an inspiration, he passed on to his son, Isaac. Isaac was different though. Isaac did two great things. First of all, he was willing to be sacrificed as a young man. Don't know how much of that he was aware of necessarily, but I think he got a bit of an inkling as he was kind of carrying the wood up to the, to the altar to be sacrificed. And then Isaac, uh, his father suggested he climbed up onto it. I think he probably had a bit of an inkling of what might have been going on, but somehow was willing to do that. He, he was very servant-hearted. He carried the wood up the hill for his dad. Then after the lamb was provided by God, Isaac grew up and in his later years was said, we're told, to have redug the wells of his father. Isaac, if you like, was a revivalist. He went back to the ancient wells and he dug them up again. In memory of his father, the great things that his father had done, he wanted to do it too. He wanted to bring new refreshment, new revival. He looked at what his father had done before and thought, I want to be like that. And he dug those ancient wells again. And then there's Jacob, next generation down. He was a bit different. Stubborn, probably. His own man, a bit persistent, possibly. Passionately persevering, doing it in his own way. He carried that family DNA in himself. His father had met with God. His grandfather before him had met with God. And he wanted his own story of encounter with God. He longed for blessing and would get blessed shrewdly or by force one way or another. He was going to be blessed. And so he wrestles with God, to remember the story. And actually, in some ways, he speaks a little bit of this generation today, I think, who wrestle with uncertainty and with questions, sometimes slightly in the shadow of those that have gone before, in the shadow of traditional inherited church and faith. But they're wrestling after spirituality. They're wrestling after truth. They don't know how to articulate that, that always. They live in a culture where, where life is to be grabbed, where life is to be won, even at the cost of treading on other people. And they're trying to make sense of all that and trying to make sense of their own journey of faith. And, and they want to walk in the heritage of what's gone before, but they want it to be on their own terms, in their own way as well. We need to give this generation space to wrestle with God. God doesn't rebuke him for that. God actually wrestles with Jacob very graciously. And of course gives him a new name. God, I believe, shows that he, his longing, his desire is to unite generations, to draw generations together. That's part of his centrepiece, part of his purpose, I think, before he comes back. The restoration of generations. In Matthew 17, Jesus, referring back to Malachi's word concerning the kind of mission of Elijah, in point, pointing to John the Baptist and the kind of uh, the, the gener final generation when everything's going to be turned back, he says this, turning of hearts of sons to the fathers and fathers to the sons is all things. It's important, this re-establishment of, of kind of generations. Seems impossible, but in God that's his heart. And then there's an echo in 2 Timothy 2. There's this passage where Paul is talking to Timothy and Paul's talking to him saying, these things I've passed on to you and I want you to pass them on to faithful young men. There's this to Paul, to Timothy, to faithful young men. There's three generation of, it, of the story not ending, but there, there being a connection and a, we're all in this together. Me, you, those who are coming. Let's all run this journey together. And it kind of excites me. 
But my experience of it in the church is that it often is not that. For too long, it seems to me, often the church grows, it matures, it develops. Often it's built on by the passion of a generation of kind of apostolic leaders and kind of dynamic leaders. And they only get replaced by a new, genera- new generation of leaders when either they die or they retire or they fall off the wagon and then someone else comes through. I think that's tragic. I don't think that's God's plan. God's plan is for generations within a church to work and lead together. Particularly as each of those generations, I think, offers something different, a new, a new journey, different understanding, different ways of seeing the world, and God doing different things in their lives. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all so different. God met with them differently. God used them differently. But they were key. And what God did them through them and in them was amazing. So what about if in this generation, if in this church, in these days, we try to do something different? What if this generation of leaders work and invest not simply in the next generation, but kind of alongside that generation? Inspiring them to look downwards and to look around them as well, to see who they could invest in as well. Generations learning from one another, each bringing skills and experiences. Maybe there's more of a sense of family and community in that. So for myself, Victoria, Mark, Sarah, Bill, Carol, a generation that I sadly now find myself in at the top, <laughs> older ones, <laughs> looking at Steve and Beth, James, Sam, Amy, Ben, that generation just coming through underneath saying, Lord, what are your dreams for them? How can we release them? How can we encourage them? How can we stand by them and cheer them on and see them take their place and rise higher than we could ever imagined? And how about them looking at Mimi and Simon, Maeli, Joel, Tabby, Tabsy and the children, the next generation down, what about that what can we invest in that generation now because God's at work in them and we can learn from them and they've got something to offer this church that we don't want to wait for 10 years until we start listening to them we want to listen to those 7 year olds now because they bring pearls of truth that can rock your world because God speaks to them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them we're told if I told you that someone was coming tonight and the kingdom of heaven was so wound up in their life, they so were part of the kingdom that they had something really important to say, you would all want to hear it. You would all want to come to that meeting because when they stood at the front, you would expect them to bring great pearls of wisdom and truth and you would expect to encounter Jesus. Well, Jesus remarkably says of those children up in that room up there in a way that's really hard to understand or reconcile that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them actually belongs to them. So when Jesus is talking to the, to, to the parents who come, the, the disciples, they try and stop. You imagine the, the picture. Jesus is there and he's been teaching. And all these parents start bringing their babies. In, in the Greek we're told it's probably suckling children, uh, suckling kind of babies and children, really young ones. We kind of understand that because it says that Jesus took them in his arms. So these are probably babies that are brought to Jesus. It was part of Jewish culture at the time that actually um, what, what Jews would do, they would take their children to the temple 
to seek a blessing from the religious leader, from the priest. And, and their prayer would be, there was a Jewish prayer that was prayed as they offered their children at the temple, longing to get a touch of a blessing from the priest. That the, that the priest would pray and ask for God's blessing, that they would become someone who, who encountered the law, was shown to be worthy and faithful in marriage, and would kind of experience God's kingdom in that sort of way, and, and live a life that was worthy of the law. So there was part of this Jewish culture of bringing a child to the temple, looking for God to bless them. Why? Because you long for the child to be able to attain the law in order that they may inherit life. You want your child, you're longing as a parent, Lord, let my child be able to live up to the law so he may be found righteous. That's the hope, that's the longing. And so it's not really a surprise, therefore, when parents bring these kids to Jesus, because they've heard about this Jesus. They know he's a man who talks about the kingdom, who is full of something remarkable. And so they bring their kids to Jesus, and they long for him to bless them, because he's a man of the kingdom, and maybe he has something to offer to our children. It's a hope for their future. And so they bring their children. And the disciples, we're told, get a bit cheesed off at this. They actually want to stop it. They actually want to prevent it from happening. We're told that they kind of step in the way and actually they, they think no, this, is not, this is not a good thing. And remarkable. Actually, clearly for the disciples it wasn't as important as it was for the parents. The parents wanted to bring their children to Jesus, but the disciples thought, look, this isn't important. It's intrusive. It's an interruption. It's unnecessary. It's unimportant. It's pointless, and we need to stop it. So they all get up to try and stop these parents, and Jesus cuts right across them. First of all, why do you think the disciples wanted to stop the children coming to Jesus? I think part of the problem is Perhaps that they too had become part of the Pharisaic kind of worldview that actually said children don't really have any place in these spiritual matters, not in real spiritual business. Children were an intrusion, a bit of an interruption, and they get in the way of proper kingdom business. Now, I don't think we have that view in church, but sadly sometimes it looks like we do. That we park them so that we can do proper church. Now, I'm really thankful that I'm part of a church, that's where we don't want to do that. We want our children to fully experience what it means to be part of God's kingdom. And we need help with that. We need help with that, practically. But somehow these disciples, they've got it all wrong. That actually, they, they were holding the children back. So it was interesting that even though in the synagogue there was training for children, there were real boundaries for them. It was a real boundary kind of area. And the adult world of theological discussion about kingdom of God seemed to not be appropriate for children. Therefore, they should be stopped being brought near. But Jesus, we're told, didn't just go, no, no, guys, you're wrong. It actually says he was indignant. It's a really strong Greek word. He was really cross. He was furious. He's like, don't you understand after everything I've been teaching you? You're really missing it if you think I'm going to hold these children back. And he was really furious. And then he goes on to say this remarkable thing, that actually the kingdom of heaven belongs to these children. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And that, I would say, theologically, is an unqualified, unambiguous statement. He's saying it belongs to them. Already, right now, here, it belongs to those children. Nothing said about the parents' faith 
or that these have been circumcised children so they're obviously on the right path or they've been baptised or there's kind of there's none of that Jesus simply says and actually Jesus in the Greek again expands it he's not talking about babies now he starts talking about children we're told that babies are brought to him but Jesus says children these children children such as these will inherit the kingdom for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them so it seems to be saying that these children have some sort of real special place within God's heart and God's plan. Almost that there's a special care over children, a special rule in their lives when they're children that we need to understand. Now we often, I've said it before, we often imagine it as a very kind of nice, neat thing. The children sat quietly on Jesus' lap, looking, stroking his Timothy hair and looking fondly, quietly and silently into his blue eyes smiling and sucking their thumbs I don't think it was like that at all <laughs> I suspect it was messy noisy, loud, they were probably giggling and laughing, poking each other pulling his hair, plucking his beard stroking his face licking their thumbs and then off- offering it to see if he wanted a thumb I-, I expect it was really messy and noisy which kind of offended the disciples, it wasn't neat and tidy and ordered as it should be for a rabbi there was a sense of chaos almost because that's the nature of children and yet Jesus was saying if you want nice, neat, religious ordered religion then just go back to the temple and the Pharisees I'm I'm here to offer life in all its fullness and the kingdom of heaven belongs to these children I think God wants to stir our hearts again for children to maybe be involved with them to pray for them when they're dancing around in worship, whipping your eye with a flag, not to want to grab a flag and whack them with it, but to be able to smile fondly, (laughs) extend patience to them and think, wow, I wish I could worship like that. Because there's something remarkable about watching a five-year-old child dancing over the heater, twirling a flag for Jesus. Because they don't care what you or I think. Wow, isn't that a revelation? Do you or I care about what others around us think when we're worshipping? Yeah, sometimes. They don't care what their voice sounds like, or they don't know the words. They don't get really self-conscious about that, like you or I do. Or if the words stop going on the screen, or I sing a different song, which regularly happens, and can't remember the next verse, they don't stand there and go, oh, oh, what do I do now? They just keep dancing and twirling and laughing because they don't really care about the words on the screen because they probably can't even read them. And sometimes they're a bit boring and they don't even make sense. Do we think that? Yeah, but we don't admit it. So they just worship freely because actually it's about Jesus, not about them. I wish sometimes I had a little banner and could dance over a grate, enjoying the hot air going up my trouser leg and my skirt floating in the wind and not care. Don't quote me about that as a vicar. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Sometimes we become so inhibited because actually if it's all for Jesus, then it's not about everyone else. Sometimes I feel a pressure to put my hand up because it makes me look holy and I probably should do it because this is the rousing point in the song where it kind of works well. Instead of being so lost in wonder, it doesn't matter if I'm sitting, kneeling, crying or silent. Children just worship freely and simply. 
perhaps because they haven't got the baggage of life or cynicism or sarcasm. There's nothing more precious than being with a group of children and saying, hey guys, we're going to pray now. And watching them close their little eyes and put their fingers together and start picking their nose and they don't care. They just know that we're going to talk to Jesus. And it's that simple. Or saying, hey guys, we're going to to try and listen to Jesus and try and hear what he might want to say to us. And you don't see that rabbit scared look that you say that when you say that to adults where instantly a thousand reasons leap into their mind why God isn't going to speak to them. Or how do I know if it's God? Is God even there? Children just simply believe because actually the kingdom of heaven belongs to them and they're closer to the Father than they often realise and God is close to them. I'm not talking about being childish and stupid. God wants us to use our rational minds. But he wants us to have a simplicity of faith that's able to say, God, this is actually all about you and not really about me. As John the Baptist prayed, Lord, less of me, more of you. And I think when we understand that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children in this precious time, and children are different, you can't nail a date of when it starts and when it ends, but somehow we're told the Bible is absolutely clear that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I believe that it's really imperative, imperative that we as parents, we as church, we as family, understand therefore that this is a key time to be involved in their lives. Because there's an openness to the gospel. There's an openness and awareness of the spiritual realm that we need to be journeying alongside them, joining generations, loving them, serving them, being older brothers and sisters, being spiritual mums and dads, being spiritual grandparents, aunts and uncles. I believe there's an amazing opportunity during this time of kind of gracious divine covering that allows us, it's a key time to be able to witness to them and for them to encounter Jesus. And so we need to be involved, and we have this privilege of doing that, of being involved with them. It's such a fertile opportunity to watch Jesus growing in their lives. It's good soil in children's lives. And you see the seeds of life going, and that's why for children's workers here and those involved in ministry will know just the utter joy sometimes of being involved in children's lives and seeing the kingdom growing and bearing fruit at that young age. We're told in Colossians, Sarah referred to it, um, to bring up children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Because there's an openness of heart in that season, I think. And so in these years of tenderness, where they're most easily open to the gospel, we need to become, help them become a generation of world changers, leaders, kingdom pioneers. And you and me are called to join in with that generation together to be family, older, younger, to join in, to have a passion for our children, to have a passion as we do for those of an older generation at St. Tom's and and one or two here, to connect up those generations, to work together, to learn from them. I've learned so much from being with people who got greater wisdom than me, to actually work with them, to join the generations together so that we can, so that our children can, so that our young people can encounter Jesus in a deeper, deeper way. So I just want to ask, as Sarah's kind of alluded to, ask you to consider joining us in working with our children, with our young people, with students, 
cross-generational in the kind of great work. There's all sorts of opportunities to do it here on Sunday evenings as we look at thinking of starting an after-schools club. We've got a, a, a school down the road, about 300 young people. They're desperate for me to start an after-school club here, Christian after-schools club here, uh, uh, at midweek. They would, if I said I was going to start it next week, we'd have 30 kids here, Christian after-school club. We need workers who will help us do it. Open Doors, Beth and the team working with these young families on the estate with toddlers and babies here on a Thursday morning. It's amazing. God wants to do more. We've got young children coming through. We've got a, a full group up there. We need a, a team to work with under sevens. We'll build a room if we need to. But we need people who maybe will come and help. If you at all feel inspired, if you're young, if you're old, if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you've got a pulse, come and talk to us. We'd love to pray for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, I want to thank you for that great example you give us of loving these young people, of embracing them, of holding them, holding them in your arms and you looking down at them and you loving them, of you stopping everything else going around you just to engage with these children because, as you said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Lord, I thank you for the children who are part of this church family. Lord, I thank you for my own children, the children of other families, those who are visiting, those who come in each week and say there's something special here that I've not encountered. I thank you that they, they, they feel that because of the people in this room, that sense of family. But Lord, we want to take that sense of family beyond the constraints we have. And so we ask for your wisdom, your provision of space, of workers, of resources of finances, of rooms, whatever it is we need. Lord, we look to you. You are our provider. And would you stir our hearts, whether we're directly involved in children's ministry or youth ministry, would you help us to show them what it means to be part of the great family of God when they're running around in the coffee room, knocking over our coffee and kicking a ball in our face. Lord, would you give us patience when they're really loud next to us in worship with their shakers that are really offbeat. Lord, would you help us not to teach them what onbeat means, but actually just to love them and to love their worship. Would you help us to be better brothers and sisters, mums and dads, family, And we pray in this church, God, that we would see the generations joined to bring your pleasure, to be one in Christ. For your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.